This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 47. Our look at what might be the big stories of the next 6 to 12 months in Nashville. Plus, from the vault, a section from September 2021, which looked at the implications of the then-newly-approved ELF test by FDA. This conversation focuses on major advances Louise Campbell, Jorn Schottenberg, and I can see occurring in the next 6 to 12 months in fatty liver treatment. Jorn starts out by discussing his recent attendance at the European Association for the Study of Diabetes meeting, his first as a hepatologist at what is clearly a diabetology endocrinology event. To Jorn, this moment crystallized the need for different specialties engaged in treating specific non-communicable metabolic diseases, that's a mouthful, to align around the same underlying set of issues. Louise Campbell agrees in general, but shares her belief that nurses should have a clear role in the discussion, and that among physicians, cardiology needs to become more engaged. I go to a completely different place, raising the idea that the recent Acaro equity raise offers the hope that large amounts of capital will come back into Nashville, bringing with them ed- energy and funding for education and information. The conversation wraps up with Jorn describing the, and I quote, big interest that endocrinologists expressed after his talk at EASD, and the idea that endocrinologists require simple tests with high negative predictive values so that they know who to send to hepatologists. This reminds me of Quentin Anstey's talk in Dublin about the different roles that first and second biomarker tests play in the diagnostic process. And I mention this as the conversation closes. We're heading into an exciting time in Nashville. For example, our episode next week discusses four recent press releases from companies with promising clinical trial results. Today's conversation blends the excitement about those kinds of upcoming advances in drugs and diagnostics with questions about whether the underlying structure exists to take advantage of the new technologies as they evolve. It raises as many questions as it answers, if not more. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. For everybody who has not been keeping track in the last three weeks, we've had Paris Nash, then we had the NAFLD Summit in Dublin, and then we had EASD in Stockholm, which Jorn attended and we didn't, and a British Liver Trust meeting, which we did not attend, but maybe grabbing highlights from in some later week. Tomorrow, there's this important meeting in uh, with NICE that is of tremendous import to Louise, and all kinds of other stuff going on at once. So today, all we're going to do is we're going to take four or five topic areas and discuss things that might happen in the next six months that are of interest to the community. In six months, we will probably come back, look at this episode and figure out how good or bad we are at prognostication. I figure if there's no danger, it's no fun. So that will be that will be our danger as we will grade ourselves six months hence. But with that, let's just get started. Jarn Schottenberg. Yeah, to, to say something on the safe side, Roger, I realize I have 12 weeks to get all my Christmas presents. That's really around the corner now. And I think there's a lot of data coming up uh, to be expected until then. So there's really not a lot of time. Unless you want to view in the professional context, those data points as being your prospective Christmas or in my case, Hanukkah presents. With that, why don't we move into our second groundbreaker, which is over the next six months, one thing each of us can envision happening that will that has the potential to dramatically shift the force around fatty liver disease. We're going to talk about lots of things in the next hour, but let's just pick one to start that's noteworthy. Go ahead. Yeah, let me step back one minute and just uh, recap on the meetings we had. It ended with the European Association for the Study of Diabetes in Stockholm, where for the first time as a hepatologist, I attended. And for me, this was, of course, a groundbreaking moment. But I think a lot of hepatologists are 
are considering. This is really the place where we got to go to to educate our peers and highlight that in addition to the complex comorbidity situation, a patient living with type 2 diabetes, uh, that means they're suffering from kidney, heart, neurovascular problems. There is the liver that needs to be tended for. And our field has matured and generated enough data to say we have straightforward and simple tools that you can integrate in your existence care of patients with type 2 diabetes to provide a more holistic or a more complete approach to health and include liver health in the regular type 2 diabetes checkup. You know, if I take those three meetings together, Paris NASH, the NAFLD Summit, and then EASAD, this is just emerging with so much force, this concept that it's here to stay and we're ready to discuss which patients need care most urgently from a hepatologist's perspective. Grand convergence was one of my themes that I want to make sure we got to today. And that's a great lead into that conversation because that's exactly what the point of it is. Louise, something in the next six months you think is important? Louise Campbell. Well, I've got the same sense as Jean, certainly from Paris and Dublin, that we are seeing more of a convergence with endocrinology and comorbidity management and certainly detection. That's fantastic news. And I can only see that strengthening, although I think it will be a slow burner. The one that's not really joining us at the table is cardiology at the moment and cardiovascular disease. Maybe those are the next conferences that Sean and the other leads have to go for that one, but um, it'll be interesting. But I, I do get the sense that we're heading in that direction and there are weaknesses and strengths that I've seen. Obviously, still the lack of nursing and lack of patient involvement in some of these sessions going forward without either of those being involved, we're not really going to trigger. So that's what I want to see and that's what I would like to see more of during the upcoming meetings for the rest of the year. Arzold, Nashtag, things like that at the beginning of next year, that we start to strengthen those bonds because we've said before and it has been commented on that one of the biggest workforces is nursing and allied health and this is one of the biggest diseases if not arguably the biggest disease in the world. So I think Sean's right. I think we are getting more endocrinology input. I think we're there to stay and I'd love to hear his feedback as to how you were received as a hepatology in an endocrine field because we always embrace Ken Cousy when he comes on. So I'd like to see whether they embraced you with the same furry gloves and um, cuddles that we give Ken. So digression and then we'll, we'll come back to that, which is that Scott Isaacs mentioned on the most recent episode of the Diabetes Podcast that he has now joined ASLD, which he believed might have made him the second endocrinologist in ASLD after Ken. But now it's a trap. There are at least two of them and gathering momentum from that direction as well. Uh, I want to talk about energy formation using a different definition of energy in a different sense, which is we've all seen the exciting and positive clinical trials that have surfaced in the last three, four weeks. And we'll be talking about that on this podcast too. But Acaro filed for $230 million in equity to help get through their phase three trial and get to market based on their 2B results. If they can get that one done at a reasonable value in an economy that's dicey to tightening in most of the world, I think it will signify that the financial markets are turning back towards some optimism about this drug class. And if they are, and either abetacolic acid or resmeteram then goes on to get approved, as I think most of us expect will happen for at least one, we will have investment from private sector to back up all the energy and all the convergence and the excitement that you two just talked about. And when you've got people having increased passion to do the right thing and the funding to do it, you can build momentum really quickly. Now, that's not that's not a, in measured in weeks, maybe not even in months, more like years, but in years and not decades. So I, I think this is potentially a really exciting time for all those reasons. Everybody's coming to the same place. With that, you're 
Let's go back to the meetings of the past three weeks that we've never talked about together, except a little bit Paris Nash, the three of us. And what do we think were the most important things that came out of them, besides increasing signs of convergence? Were there specific papers, presentations, concepts that you thought were particularly helpful as we look forward? Roger, I think you discussed some of them already in this podcast. So without being too redundant, I'd like to focus on ESAD again and pick up where Louise left her last question, which is how was this concept that liver disease as part of the multimorbidity management in patients living with type 2 diabetes being received by these peers. And there was a strong interest there because, again, those endocrinologists are used to managing comorbidities and we give them simple tools. Now, we've discussed all the pitfalls of the FIP4, which doesn't capture all advanced disease cases, but it will identify a relevant subset of patients that do need a follow-up. And I had a lot of one-on-one discussions after the presentation I gave on how this could potentially be implemented, highlighting that that lab systems could automatically report FIP4 if you calculate three penny lab values in the end, AST, ALT, and platelets, adding on age, and then you end up with identifying those patients. And the second question is, well, where's the hepatologist that I can send these to? That's where we got to build more momentum and maybe in even intersect allied health professionals to not have these patients being lost in the system. But from endocrinologists' perspective, the ones I talk to and the ones that then come up to me, that's not maybe representative of the entire field. But for sure, there's a big interest and there's much more, let's call it, ground root talk about which liver function tests I need, how can I do this in my practice, and that's simple compared to hepatologists. You know, we're very focused on improving the numbers or increasing negative predictive values and so on. In the field of endocrinologists, we're entering at a whole different level where there's not as much knowledge and they're very open to include these metrics in their care and then start providing liver health. That's interesting. Very interesting to me. Quentin produced a paper in Dublin that I thought was very, I guess the British would call it clever, in terms of thinking about the statistics of NPVs and PPVs in a different way than we have historically. And his point was dead on, which is that if you think about the statistics of predictive values, any equation will be managed to solve for the bigger case. So if you're dealing with a population that's 80% negative, 20% positive, you will set different values for a test than you would if you were dealing with a population that's 50% negative and 50% positive. Quentin's point, and I'm going to overstate slightly, and Quentin, if you hear this and I'm wrong, please forgive me, write in and or, or, or send me a flamer email and we'll figure out how to get it cleaned up, was that because the test is for the patients who are at risk of fibrosis, and that's only 10-15% of the population, 20% if you go to diabetics, for example, that any first test, NPV will matter far more than PPV, and you should assign values accordingly. If you wipe out a significant portion of people who are not sick, by the second test, you might be at 50-50, and then PPV will definitely be higher, because whatever test you use, you'll be evaluating a different population. Point being, it makes less sense to worry about what the perfect first or second test is, and to understand the underlying dynamic of the statistics and to use the two tests appropriately. And you're, the reason that matters to me in the context of what you just said is exactly what you just said, which is endos simply want to know what to do first. And a bunch of tests might be good enough for what to do first, although FIB4 is the one that's dirt cheap and becoming most readily accepted. But for a second test, that gets into the hands of hepatologists who might focus more on what the best option is. But also now we're looking for an option that we're measuring based on its ability to get PPV high as compared to merely get NPV high. There's a logic in terms of how to use tests that will flow with what happens on a clinical care pathway. And I thought Quentin's paper pointed that up nicely. And I'm hoping that people are going to look a lot more at that going forward. And now back to Roger. 
We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week to discuss exciting advances in drug development as highlighted by recent press releases from Acara, Poxel, Altimmune, and Excella. In the meantime, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. We'll be right back.